Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's been four months that we've been studying eternity. We've followed the Christian from the grave to glory, from death to eternal life, from the temporal into the eternal, from earth to heaven. And we've seen all of the different stages and all of the different phases. And, you know, that's one journey you want to make sure you're ready for. We're all going to take it. You want to make sure that you're ready because the Bible says it's appointed unto every man to die once. And after this comes the judgment. But to get to heaven, you have to have the right approach. You can't just say, well, I just decided I want to go there. And that's a good decision, but you've got to make sure that you come through the right channel. Just like if you were to go to a foreign country, you couldn't just decide, I'll buy a plane ticket. You can't get into a country unless you have one of these. I brought mine this morning because there was a time when I forgot mine at the airport in Los Angeles. I had flown from Albuquerque to LAX. I had been doing domestic travel, and I just didn't think about putting the passport in. So when I got to my connecting flight at LAX, they asked for this, and my heart sunk because I knew I didn't pack it. So I had to stay overnight in L.A. airport while this was being overnighted to me. The passport allows you entrance into a foreign country. And so, too, to get into heaven, you have to come with the right documentation, not because you have a big Bible or a bumper sticker on your car or because you attend a certain church, but you've come the way of Jesus Christ alone. And so I want to sum up all that we have studied with today's message. There's two things you need to be sure of. You need to be ready to die, and you need to be ready to live until you die. First, you need to be ready to die because that moment could come at any moment. I heard a story of a bank in Binghamton, New York, that wanted to uh, send flowers to a competitor bank that had moved to a new location. So they sent the flowers, but the flower shop got the card mixed up. So you imagine their surprise when this new bank at their new location saw a card on the flowers that read, With Deepest Sympathy. It just wasn't the right message. The flower company was embarrassed, but they were even more embarrassed because they realized at that moment there's a funeral home in that town and a flower bouquet in front of a casket with a card that said, Congratulations on your new location. is pretty accurate, actually, if you think about it. That person in the casket is no longer there. They're at a new location. Question is, where are they? It may or may not be a cause for congratulations. So you want to make sure that you're ready to die, but are you ready to live until you die? And this is where we now come to Philippians. How do you strike the balance between being a citizen of heaven, that's where we're going to end up, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, while at the same time being responsible as a citizen of this earth. How do we live in between these worlds? We're, we're moving to heaven, but we're on the earth. And Philippians gives us a real good structure on how to do that. 
I'm taking you to chapter 1, and we're going to read a section of verses together. And I'm going to give you four words that will describe how Paul strikes the balance between the present and the future. Those words are simple, and they're in your outline. Rustling, wanting, willing, and waiting. And we'll see how that unpacks as we go together. Let's read the entire section, beginning in chapter 1, verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life Or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. It's pretty obvious from this paragraph that Paul is wrestling with something. He's struggling with how he feels about what the future might bring. You see, he's in prison. He's been arrested. And he doesn't know how the trial is going to go, if he's going to get a death sentence or if he's going to be released. He may live, he may die. He didn't know. And so he's very honest emotionally about how he takes the situation. And I tell you, when I first read this paragraph, I'll tell you what came to my mind immediately. Remember Fiddler on the Roof? Remember the patriarch of the family named Tevia? His three daughters are getting married, and this guy thinks out loud. He processes out loud, and one of his daughters wanting to marry this guy. They don't really approve of the guy, and so Tevia says, On one hand, he's not the one I would have chosen, but on the other hand, she loves him. And on one hand, and he goes back and forth deliberating with this choice. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He's thinking about the possibility of living and continuing his ministry, or dying and going to heaven. Notice verse 23. I'm hard-pressed between the two. We'd say, I'm in between a rock and a hard place. In fact, the idea, the picture behind the language that Paul uses is the picture of a traveler on a narrow road with a canyon, walls on either side, and as he travels, they're pressing in further and further and constricting his travel more and more. So think of it this way. On one side is the wall of what Paul wants for himself in the light of his situation. I'd rather just be in heaven. On the other side is the wall of what they, the Philippian church, need for Paul to continue and to minister to them and to live as an example. Now let's apply that. Sometimes our lives become confined. Things narrow. Our options are less today than they were yesterday. 
We feel like life is closing in on us at those times. It could be an illness that we face, loss of a loved one, loss of a job, career change, death of a vision, breakup of a relationship. We feel like our life is being constricted. At those moments, our choices are very critical. And, and we as Christians are faced with a choice. Am I going to land on choosing to live for God's glory or for my personal comfort? Typically, when we go through a hard time, our first response is, how can I get out of this? It should be, what can I get out of this for the glory of God? Now, I'll tell you why that's a critical choice. Because in those times, if our motivation is for personal comfort rather than God's glory, we're going to end up in one of two different camps. Number one, some become fatalistic. That is, this is hard, heaven is better, it'd be better if I just die. I know people who live their whole life that way. They're never happy, it's always it's a bummer, it's a drag, life's horrible, we're going to get to heaven soon, it'd be better to die. Now those people can develop suicidal tendencies. It can be a very dangerous way to think. Others, rather than becoming fatalistic, become totally materialistic. Yep, life is hard. This is a drag. I know I'm going to heaven, but till I get there, I'm going to make it all about me and have as much fun and spend as much money as I can on my own personal comfort. They become materialistic. I know that she didn't really completely understand what she was saying, but I'm going to tell you a story about a girl that I met years ago. We were all talking about, she was a believer. We were all talking about the Lord coming soon. And she was just getting engaged to a young fellow. And I'll never forget what she said. We said, yeah, Jesus could come at any moment. And she said, well, I hope he doesn't come right away. Because there are still a few things I haven't done yet. There's a few experiences I haven't made it through. Like marriage and children. And I'd like to buy a house. And she had a little list of things she wanted before the Lord came. Now, I understand that kind of emotion. But she really sold the Lord short on that, not understanding what eternity had in store for her as a believer. Sort of reminds me of Mark Twain when he was told about heaven. He said, you can have heaven. You just give me Bermuda. You know, for him, the temporal was more important than the eternal. So here's Paul. He's in a predicament. He's in prison. He doesn't know which way the verdict's going to fall. And so he's wrestling. Now he tells us also in the same paragraph what he wants personally. He's wrestling with a predicament. He's wanting to push off. And I'll tell you why I use that language in a moment. Look at, look at verse 23. He said, I'm hard-pressed between the two these constricting walls of my emotion, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So what does he want? What does he want to do? He has a desire to what? Depart. Now, the word he chose is a very telling and descriptive word, analusai. And uh, analusai means to let loose of or to break up or to undo. And it was a word a couple thousand years ago in the Greek language that was used, number one, of mariners who were leaving port. 
And what they would do is they would loose the ship of the moorings. They would untie the ropes. They would bring up the anchor. And that would give them the freedom to set sail. That's what they meant by the word departure. And it's a beautiful description of Christian death. I'm going to pick up the anchor and I'm moving on. Paul used it that way when he wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He was toward the end of his life and he said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure on Eleusi is at hand. Timothy, I'm, I'm already untying the ropes. I'm bringing up the anchor. I know my time is short. I'm setting sail. Now, this imagery has found its way into hymnology. Some of the hymn writers speak about gathering together on the other shore. We're setting sail. There's a second way the word analusi was used in ancient times, and that was for striking a camp or breaking up a camp. Soldiers would camp out in their tents. When it was time for them to move on, they would fold their tents up, they would take out the tent pegs, they would wind up the cords, and they would move on. That's a beautiful description of death as well. We're pilgrims. We're traveling through. We're camping out on this earth. This isn't permanent. Now, camping is a lot of fun for like a day. Okay, for a week or two. But, you know, you know, after like two or three weeks in a tent, it gets really old, doesn't it? You know, you long for something more permanent. You long for a, a shower because you're smelling pretty ripe after a few weeks. I don't care what KOAs have. It's just different. And so the Bible is very descriptive to say this life is like living in a tent. We're camping out. And when we die, we strike the camp and we move on to something more permanent. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave these bodies, we'll have a home in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God and not by human hands. And if you're um, an honest person, the longer you live, you realize, yep, it is very temporary, and I am in a tent. I woke up this morning and looked at my tent in the mirror, and I saw the flaps, and uh, the tent is stretching out a little bit, the cords are wiggling a little bit looser, and uh, you can't wait for something more permanent. A few days before he died, a guy by the name of F.B. Meyer, he was a pastor of last generation, wrote to a friend. Now, here's a guy on his deathbed, and he says this, I have just heard, to my great surprise, that I have but a few days to live. It may be that before this letter reaches you, I shall have entered the palace. And he closes, Don't trouble to write, We shall meet in the morning. That's so beautiful. Hey, here I am. I'm writing you. You may not even get this before I'm in the palace. I get to heaven. I've moved on. Don't even bother to write. See you in the morning. I've also discovered that departure can come at any moment. You might think today, oh, I won't depart from this life for years. You might not be here next week. There are just no guarantees. It can happen at any moment. And here's Paul saying, I'll tell you what I want. I would love to depart. I'd love to set sail. I'd love to strike the camp and move on to something more permanent. 
Notice what he continues to say in that verse. Uh, Having a desire to depart and be with Christ. Now, that's the best part. The best part isn't the departure. It's the arrival. It's the encounter. I think I told you about J.B. Phillips, who wrote that great translation of the New Testament, and he conducted so many funerals in his lifetime, but he never spoke about a Christian who died as the dearly departed. You ever hear a pastor say that at a funeral? Here the dearly departed is... He didn't say that. He talked about them as the one who has arrived. And if you're a believer, when you die, you've really arrived. So there's the departure, but there's immediately the encounter. I have a desire to depart because it means I'm going to be with Christ. And we have spent four months talking about the arrival. Four months talking about what it's like the moment we die and we're in glory and we get reunited with loved ones and we're in the throne room of God and we see the Lamb and the choirs of heaven and what the resurrected bodies will be like. And all of that hope upon the arrival. Now, you know, there's, there's two modes of transportation to heaven. Number one, death. And so far, that's how everybody has gotten there who's gotten there. Death. Number two is when the Lord comes back and the saints who are alive are instantly translated into heaven. That's the rapture of the church. That's another way to get there. Those are the only two modes of getting to heaven. That's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here's the best part. And so shall we always be with the Lord. There's the departure. There's the encounter. And the encounter is the best part. Because once you're with him, you'll always be with him, right? Once you're caught up in the air or you die and you're instantly in heaven, you'll always be with him. You'll be with him when he returns to the earth. You'll be with him in the millennial reign. You'll be with him in the eternal city. Forever you'll be with the Lord. No wonder he says then in the same verse, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, look at this, which is far better. Two words, far better. In Greek, it's three words. You know what it reads literally? Which is much more better. If you're an English teacher, that's repulsive to you. That's bad English. (laughs) Happens to be good Greek. And it's great theology. Heaven is much more better than earth. The arrival is much more better than even the departure and being here. Now, for Paul to say this, it's pretty obvious that he believed the moment he died, he would at that very moment be with the Lord. There's no holding pattern. There's no waiting. There's no going somewhere else. There's no limbo. There's no purgatory. There's no soul sleep as some hold that if you die as a Christian, you go into this sort of suspended state of unconsciousness until the Lord returns. Then you're awakened and you're with him. Paul wouldn't have said that if he believed that. Because he thought when he departs, he'll be with Christ, which is far better. He was anticipating to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm going to read to you something else. Dwight Lyman Moody, I've quoted him on many occasions, the great evangelist and pastor of Moody Bible Church last generation. 
he was on his deathbed. And while he was there and he didn't know what the future state would be, he told his family gathered around him, I'm not discouraged. I want to live as long as I'm useful. But when my work is done, I want to be up and off. I want to push off. That's my desire to depart when it's my time. After a particularly restless night, the next morning, with a very careful, measured speech, he said this, Earth recedes, heaven opens before me. His son, who was at his bedside, thought, Pops is dreaming. And Dwight said to his son, No, this is not a dream, Will. It's beautiful. If this is death, it is sweet. There's no valley here. God is calling me, and I must go. What a great way to go. It's so great to have lived that kind of a life so that at the end you go, Ah, this is it. I'm graduating now. This is sweet. So go back to Paul. He's in prison in Rome writing to the Philippians, doesn't know which way the verdict will pass on his behalf or will he be killed. And as he wrestles with this, he says, let me just tell you where I'm at. Where I'm at, my own personal desire would be a lot easier, a lot better for me to leave this earth and be home with the Lord. However, the 24th verse switches gears. Though that's what he wants. The third word, he's willing to persist. He's willing to stay and work for the Lord on earth. For he says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh or in my physical body is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for, or excuse me, I I forgot the word all, and continue with you all. He's from the south. For your progress and joy of faith. So, you see what he's saying? As much as I want to go home, I understand that I have some unfinished work here and I have a hunch that I'm going to stay around for you all. This is what I want you to notice. Here's a spiritual man caught between two worlds, earth and heaven. And as a spiritual man, though he would love to just be in heaven because it's a place of comfort and joy and reward... He's balancing out what he wants with what they need, and he places what they need before what he wants. That's a spiritual man. What I want you to see about Paul is that he just didn't preach great sermons. This is how he lived. Go over to chapter 2. Look at verse 3. He writes to them, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Here's a guy who will practice what he preaches. Here's Paul in prison putting them and their interests even before his own. Go back now to chapter 1. Look at verse 22. But if I live on in the flesh, that is, if if I don't die, if I get released, if I live on in the flesh... This will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. In other words, as long as I'm still kicking, I'm going to be serving the Lord. 
I'm going to make sure that I'll labor and be energetic and produce fruit. Now, Jesus himself said you can tell about a person's life by the fruit that they produce. And if you're a spiritual person, you'll, you'll produce spiritual fruit. John Stott said these words, The Christian should resemble a fruit tree, not a Christmas tree. For the gaudy decorations of a Christmas tree are only tied on, whereas fruit grows on a fruit tree. Now, what's, what, what is fruit the result of? Work, right? Uh, a, a farmer will sow, and the Bible says, whatever you sow, you'll reap. So fruit comes from one's labor. That's why Paul uses the term from my labor. Unless you actually do something as a Christian, you'll never be fruitful. Now, it begins by just a connection with Jesus Christ. You abide in the vine. And as you abide in the vine, he energizes you to serve, to serve people, to work. Now, before we move on from this, notice that toward the beginning of that sentence of um, verse 22 is the word if. Don't miss this. But if I live on in the flesh. You see, Paul doesn't know if he'll die or if he'll live. Right? So because that huge condition is sitting in front of him, this if, he understands that if I live, I'm going to be fruitful. Because once I die, my opportunity to labor and produce fruit is over. Right? You're not going to witness in heaven. You're not going to pass tracts out in heaven. You're not going to be giving money to further God's kingdom in heaven. You won't be discipling in heaven. You're in heaven. The reward comes. So if I live on in the flesh, all of my labor and all of my energy and all of my fruit must be produced now on this earth before I get to heaven. Now I take you to the fourth word, and that is waiting. Paul's been wrestling with the predicament, wanting to depart and be with Christ, willing to stay here if that's what God desires. But I've saved this, which is, I think, the best for the last. This is Paul now waiting with a passion. Look at verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, that is Paul's life sentence. That that sums up, in my view, all of Paul's life and death. This would be a great thing to have on his tombstone. This is his motto. This is his slogan. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I wonder what one sentence would sum up your life. If there was going to be something on your tombstone that marked who you were in this life and how you live, what, what would it be? I heard about a dentist who died, and on his tombstone, it simply said, Here lies John Smith filling his last cavity. <laughs> now, that's not too comforting. All he did in life is fill cavities, and now he's just filling in this cavity in the earth. This good old dentist is filling his last cavity. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
So let's just consider in closing those two options. Let's say Paul got out of jail. Okay, Paul, you're free now. You get to continue and live on in the flesh. What's, what's your life going to be all about? Christ. You know, talk about a guy with a one-track mind. It's Paul. I, I've been honestly convicted just reading through Philippians in preparation for this morning's message. Because I notice how often Paul zeroes in on and mentions Jesus Christ in just the first chapter. We're in Christ Jesus. You're in Philippi, but you're in Christ. I'm in prison, but my chains are in Christ. I want to spread the gospel of Christ. This guy lived with a one-track mind. He wrote to the Romans and he said, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It was all about Christ. It's like the little boy who went to Sunday school and he got his first time he'd ever been to church. Got out of Sunday school and his mom said, well, how, how was it? He said, oh, it was good. Well, what was your teacher's name? He goes, I don't know her name, but she must have been Jesus' grandmother. <laughs> because Jesus was the only one she could talk about the whole class. Right, that's just like Paul. Jesus is the only one he seems to talk about in this life. For me to live is Christ. I want to tie something to that. Don't, don't lose this one. Look at verse 20. I want to unpack that. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. You see that, those two words, earnest expectation? Let me tell you what that means. It speaks of a person sticking his head out to see what's coming up. He's intently focusing on what's coming up, that he's eager, he's anticipating it. He's saying, as long as I live, my my one focus of what's coming is that my life might magnify and glorify Jesus Christ. I want to live in such a way that my own body becomes a base of operations for Jesus Christ. Don't miss this because I have met too many Christians with this weird view of the body. Yeah, the body's all bad and the spirit's all good and don't worry about the body. It's all about the spirit. And there's truth to that and I know where they're coming from. But the Bible says your body ought to become the base of operations and a vehicle for him to work. Verses like Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Romans 6, present the members of your bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? This is what all that means. Your hands can become like His hands, His instruments to do His work. Your mouth could be so yielded to him that you're speaking his words and speaking life to other people. Your feet could be on a mission to do his work. Your whole life, marriage, hobbies, occupation could be to magnify Christ. The great composer Bach said, all of music should have no other aim than the glory of God. Whenever he wrote a score, he would begin by writing two letters at the top, J, J, Jesu Juva, which means, Lord Jesus, help me. And he'd write his music. 
At the end, he would write three initials at the bottom. S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone the glory. All of life was lived to magnify and to glorify Jesus Christ. Now, again, we're not done yet with that verse. Look at this phrase. That Christ will be magnified. Now, just get a picture in your minds of what it means to magnify Christ. Megaluna is the Greek word. It means to enlarge or to make great. Now, here's my question. How in the world could we possibly make great or any greater, the greatest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, let alone through our bodies? How is that possible? I'm going to tell you how. Here's, here's an illustration and then the application. Out there in the universe, out there in the heavens... There are stars that are so much bigger than the sun. Some of these stars are a thousand million miles in diameter. But they're so far away, you can't see them, you can't apprehend them, unless you have an instrument called a telescope that magnifies them, it enlarges them, it brings them closer. Well, I suggest to you that just like the stars are in the heavens, Jesus Christ is to most people. He's so distant, he's so 2,000 years old, he's a misty figure of history that nobody thinks is relevant for today. You have the opportunity to magnify him, to make him large. And here's how. As people watch your life, especially as you suffer like Paul was in prison, it's an opportunity for people to go, wow. There is a Jesus who is alive and makes a big difference in that person's life. He's now larger than life. I see him at work in his people. So you get the idea of what Paul says when, if I live or die, I want to enlarge, magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. He's brought closer. Okay, so that's one option, if I live. Now, this is if he dies, and this is where we close. For me to live as Christ... And to die is gain. Okay, we've spent four months on the last part. The gain part. We've talked all about what you gain as a believer when you die and what's up ahead. We're not afraid of death. Death just sweetens the pie. In fact, I don't even think it's accurate to say he died or she died. It's better to say he moved. She moved. They've relocated. I've watched a lot of people die over the years. I've sat at deathbeds. A little over a year ago with my own mother and several other people, even here in this fellowship. And I've watched those last breaths and I've, I've looked into their eyes and I've heard that last on many occasions, <sighs> nothing more. And it's a holy moment for me because I imagine at the end of that labored breath what the next breath, so to speak, in heaven must be like. I guarantee it's not, uh, it's more like, wow. That's if you know Christ. If not, it might sound something like, uh oh. Certainly don't want that. Now, only the person who can say, for me to live as Christ, is the one who can say to die is gain. You fill in the blank. For me to live is whatever. 
And I don't know what that is. I don't know honestly what would sum up your goal in life. Let's just suppose it's finances, it's materialism. Okay, so let's finish the sentence. For me to live is money. To die is to leave it all behind. It's not a gain, it's a loss. Let's say you want status, notoriety, position. Okay, let's finish the sentence. For me to live is notoriety. To die is to be quickly forgotten. Let's say it's a perfect physique. (laughs) Okay, just for me to live is a perfect physique. To die, well, you get really ugly after you die. So you lose it all. Only the person who can say for me to live is Christ can say to die is gain. The Indians had a great saying. I don't know which tribe of Native Americans it was, but there's a little old saying in one of those tribes that goes like this. When you were born... You cried, but the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. There's good wisdom in that. Put it in Paul's words, for me to live is Christ and therefore to die is gain. Heaven is something we're all invited to go to. But just as I needed a passport to get out of this country into another country, the only way to get into heaven, the only passport into heaven, are the merits of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Until we get there, it's my prayer that heaven will be more than a destination. It will become our motivation. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.